If Australia is burning from the effects of climate change, Venice is drowning. We went to the ancient Italian city to witness what scientists believe is a disturbing future. Water rising higher and more frequently. So what does Venice's new normal signal to the rest of us? Sea level is rising almost everywhere on Earth. Not only is sea level rising, the rise is accelerating. It's happening faster and faster. You may think you know Joaquin Phoenix from the parts he's played. Dark, complicated, sometimes disturbed characters like the deranged clown in Joker. That's not what we found at all. One person we talked to who knows you says that uh, you're a wonderful actor and a terrible movie star. So, who is this person? I'm, I'm not going to say. Oh, please. You know. <laughs> you're not laid back when you play tennis. No, I think I'm a very intense person with a lot of energy. I live life and sports at maximum intensity. Tonight, we will try to explain how Rafa Nadal, the most intense tennis player of his generation, can come from a place like this, the sleepy, sunny island of Mallorca. The world's number one player told us he'll never leave. Have you jumped off that? Yeah. Yeah. A couple of times, yes. Oh, man. I'm Leslie Stahl. I'm Bill Whitaker. I'm Anderson Cooper. I'm John Wertheim. I'm Nora O'Donnell. I'm John Dickerson. I'm Scott Pelley. Those stories tonight on 60 Minutes. You know those mornings when you feel like you just can't get it right? Overslept, caught in traffic, coffee spilled on your crisp white shirt. It can be hard out there. But you know what'll transform your morning? Dave's Killer Bread. Dave's hearty lineup of morning makers, organic bread, bagels, and English muffins are here to revive your day and fix all the things. And it all tastes real good. Never skip on DKB, a guaranteed fresh start. Visit daveskillerbread.com to learn more and look for Dave's Killer Bread in the bread aisle of your local grocery store. Australia is burning. An area about as large as West Virginia has been blackened by the fires, and according to a University of Sydney scientist, it's estimated a billion animals have died. The blazes are bigger than the ones that torched California and the Amazon, events that took place on different continents but are part of the same story, global climate change. It's a story not just of fire, but water. Before climate scientists worried about Australia burning, they warned that Venice, Italy, is drowning. Man's most beautiful artifact, built on millions of pylons in the middle of a lagoon, may be vanishing before our eyes. The periodic floods of Venice have become more threatening and more frequent. This past November, a sudden storm surge overwhelmed nearly 90% of the city. Climate scientists say what happened that night exactly two months ago in Venice is a warning to the world of what's to come, and not just in Venice. Ever since the 5th century, Venice has depended on the water for survival. This improbable Italian city knit together between islands used water as a barrier against invaders to become a jewel of the world. Then came the night of November 12th. Streets ran like rivers. Squares became swimming pools. It was Venice's second highest tide ever recorded more than six feet above sea level. Wind from a storm barreling up the Adriatic Sea accelerated from six miles an hour to 70 
in less than 15 minutes. When the surge was over, the destruction totaled a billion dollars. It's enough. And now I say to myself, the other night with the water until my almost underpants downstairs, I mean, this is ridiculous. We can't be like this. The power of the water was so strong. That really... Toto Bergamo Rossi is known as Venice's unofficial mayor. A descendant of an ancient Venetian family, he is a director of the Venice Heritage Foundation. I feel like I'm the doctor of this kind of old passion and I have to do it. I have to check. I have to help. If Venice is a patient, is it time to call the ambulance? Uh, now I think it's like, uh, how you call that kind of department? <laughs> they put you the mask and oh. you are... Oh, yeah, the, the intensive care unit. <laughs> intensive care, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Now we are in intensive care. Yeah. Completely. But it wasn't just one flood. For days in November, Venetians woke to the sound of tones, warning of more record-breaking tides. Venice has always been vulnerable. The city is also slowly sinking. But the water is rising higher and more frequently. Three of the eight highest tides in Venice's recorded history occurred just in November. This is becoming the new normal. And waterlogged Venetians wonder how much more this ancient city can take. The frequency, it's like an earthquake. When there are too many, then it means something is happening. I see it as an opportunity to wake up the world. Luigi Brugnaro, a conservative and former businessman, is Venice's elected mayor. Are you convinced that the recent water rise, the frequency of the water rise, is the result of man-made climate change? Yes, of course. Yes, these are the effects of climate change. These extreme events are damaging many of Venice's masterpieces, like the 900-year-old Basilica of St. Mark, known as the Church of Gold. Its marble floors were swamped on November 12th, and downstairs water buried the crypt for only the second time ever. The water receded but left behind salt, which Italians call the cancer because it eats away at mosaics and foundations. Pierpaolo Campostrini, who helps manage the basilica, pled for his church and his city. I'm emotional. I'm also a bit angry about this. Who are you angry at? It's a fault of my generation. Oh, so I don't want to leave to my children this responsibility. My generation should act. This past November, Venice nearly lost another of its gems. This is the most beautiful theater all around the world. At La Fenice, where Verdi debuted his operas La Traviata and Rigoletto, November's flood hit days before the season opener. Once the danger was over, Fortunato Ortombina, and these, uh, La Fenice's artistic director, relived the drama of the panic backstage. Can you imagine this tube with the water? coming out like a fountain. It was completely under the water. And it's never supposed to have any water. No, 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 no. If the water arrives on the cable, on the line where you have electricity, it explodes. Yeah. It explodes. Miraculously, it didn't. And with vacuums running around the clock, the water went down so the curtain could go up. The opening scene from Verdi's Don Carlo? A prayer for the dead. Venice is facing an existential threat, essentially, to the city as it has been. You say Venice is dying. Those are the stakes for you. Those are the stakes, and that's exactly... Michael Oppenheimer is a professor of geosciences at Princeton University. 
He was a lead author of a landmark report for the United Nations on climate change that found coastal cities are increasingly at risk from sea level rise. When people look at Venice and what is happening in Venice, more floods, faster and higher, what message should they take for the rest of the world? Oh, the rest of the world should take the message that this is what the situation is going to look like in many places that they live in. Venice is just you know, as everybody says, the canary in the coal mine. It's happening there now. Climate change, Oppenheimer says, is the major reason we'll see more floods for the ages across the globe, like the one that hit Venice two months ago. Sea level is rising almost everywhere on Earth. Not only is sea level rising, the rise is accelerating. It's happening faster and faster. How much faster has that pace quickened? So by the year 2050, which is only 30 years into the future, Many places around the world, including in the U.S., are going to experience the historical once-in-a-hundred-year flood level once a year or more frequently. Let me repeat that. An event that used to cause severe flooding once a century, we're going to get that same water level once a year. What cities are we talking about? Places like Los Angeles, San Diego, Key West... Miami, Jacksonville, Savannah, Honolulu. But at least there is a plan to defend Venice. We headed out to one of the three inlets where the tides from the Adriatic Sea flow into the lagoon that surrounds the city. This is where Venetians hope that a controversial project called Moses will part the waters. More than 30 years in the making, Moses is supposed to deploy 78 retractable gates to block exceptional high tides, as this animation illustrates. Construction finally began in 2003, but corruption scandals and engineering challenges have delayed Moses years past its due date. After all the tests are done, when are you saying that Moses will be ready? It's now planned by the hand of 2021. In a tunnel 60 feet below sea level, we met Alessandro Soru, the project's lead engineer. So how many days a year was it planned that Moses would be used? Say an average of 10 days a year. But the fear is if the Adriatic continues to rise past projections, the Moses gates may have to be raised nearly every day by the middle of this century. It was not designed for that kind of wear and tear. The worst flood in Venice's history happened in 1966. It was only a few inches higher than this past November's. Back in 66, experts said the flood was a once-in-800-year event. Nonetheless, thousands of Venetians left for good. It really was the major historic turning point in, in the recent history of the city. And we thought that something like that would not happen again. Shaul Bossi is a product of that flood. A professor of English literature at Venice's Kafoskari University, his parents met when his mother went to Venice to help the flood victims. They stayed, but how many will now that the seasonal high tides known as aqua altas are getting worse? Explain how it was different this time from previous aqua altas. So I think that people now feel far more vulnerable. We're hearing the sirens now. Aqua alta is coming back. You see, this is what's happening. It's happening every day now. It's never happened like that. You know it happens one, two, three days. Now it's like over a week that every day we have that. This is new. When you hear the sirens, does that take you back? And so I, you know, 
Now it really makes me feel very nervous. During our eight days in Venice, we found the city on edge because the water keeps defeating the accommodations residents have already made to it. The real, real threat, as far as I'm concerned, is that they may actually push even more people away and would live the city as a kind of ghost town or as a beautiful empty museum. The ground floors in this stooped and shrinking city have already been abandoned. Life is lived on the first story and above. Artisans like Severio Pastor, one of the last who patiently crafts orlocks for the city's gondolas, are becoming scarce. While residents weigh moving out, the tourists keep marching in, donning neon booties and learning to walk on water, or in single file on the hastily assembled footbridges that lace through what may be a doomed city. To give Venice a future, its mayor wants to turn the city into a world laboratory to combat climate change. Why don't we do it here? Let's do it here. Let's study it here. Let's study the water. Let's study the pollution, the rising waters, the temperature. It could be an example of great mobilization at a world level. Is the message to the rest of the world, if you don't save Venice, it will happen to you next? I don't want to worry anybody, but I think I'd like a different message. Let's save Venice to save the world. Venice has survived before. Every November, Venetians flock to the Santa Maria della Salute Church, which was built to commemorate the end of the 17th century plague that killed 50,000 citizens. This year's ceremony in the wake of the flood had a special resonance. The festival is a festival about survival. Was it more well attended this year than it would have been in the past? Absolutely. I think that it was more heartfelt. I think a lot of people this time felt, you know, this might not be there forever. I think this is what has perhaps changed, that a lot of us are feeling, well, we cannot take this for granted. What would be lost is a city where so much of the art interprets the natural beauty of light that arrives twice a day, once from the sun and once as it is reflected back off the water. But Venice is no longer just something beautiful to look at. Its fragility is a warning to the rest of the planet that this ancient city is under pressures from forces it cannot control. Venice is not alone. In a world of warming temperatures and sea level rise, no place is an island. If all you know about Joaquin Phoenix is the parts he's played, you might think he'd be aloof, maybe even disturbed. During his nearly four decades as an actor, dark, complicated characters have become something of a trademark. His most recent role is the mentally ill clown Arthur Fleck, who becomes a deranged killer in Joker. It's a daring and complex performance that's earned Phoenix critical acclaim, controversy, and talk of a fourth Oscar nomination at just 45 years old. Phoenix has a reputation for being difficult in interviews, and we weren't sure what to expect when we met him in Los Angeles. What we found was a shy, wry, welcoming actor who wasn't entirely sure he wanted to talk with us at all. Do you like being interviewed? Because it doesn't seem like from other interviews I've read that you like it. It's all right, but it's it's not something if I had, like, the choice of, like, four different activities, I don't think it'd be <laughs> this one would not be one of them? No. <laughs> um, one person we talked to who knows you says that uh, you're a wonderful actor and a terrible movie star. 
Who is this person? <laughs> I'm not going to say. Oh, please. You made it. <laughs> what does that mean? It means that you're not interested in the trappings of being a movie star. You don't have an assistant. You, you're not on social media. Well, hold on. And, and you're not in a, living in a mega mansion somewhere and driving, you know, Lamborghinis around. Um, the Lamborghinis in the shop. Ah, okay. uh, <laughs> no. Unlike many actors, Phoenix isn't surrounded by an entourage. I love you. Just his two curious dogs, Soda nice. and Oscar. He leads a relatively quiet life in the Hollywood Hills. Unexceptional, except for the fact he's widely considered one of the most talented actors of his generation. He's played Jesus. Hello, I'm Johnny Cash. And Johnny Cash. It takes an emperor to rule an empire. A cunning emperor and gladiator and a struggling loner in The Master. Tell me why you're not with her if you love her so much. I told her I'd come back, and I never went back, and now I just, I gotta get back to her. Why don't you go back? I don't know. Why don't you go back? I don't know! Close your eyes. Joaquin Phoenix has appeared in more than 30 films. Did I get you? And has already received three Oscar nominations. They say success breeds confidence. What's happening out there? But Phoenix is still playing by self-doubt. Do you get nervous? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. On a set? Yes, petrified. What are you petrified about? I mean, you're, you've been doing this for 30-plus years. Yeah. There's so many things that I want to express. Like, when I take on a role um, and I go through the script, I'm just, like, full of ideas. And so I guess I'm just nervous that I'm not going to be able to, to find the right kind of space to express that. He's been known to get testy when asked about his acting process. We tried anyway. It's difficult to talk about because I don't really understand it, mm -hmm. right? I'm just trying to articulate something for you, but I don't... Isn't it the fact that you don't quite understand it that makes it so compelling? Yes, and it's what makes doing interviews so frustrating, right? Um, because it is, there's a certain mystery that I love and I appreciate um, and I'm comfortable with. You think you it? His characters, however, are often uncomfortable to watch. Especially his most recent role as Arthur Fleck in Joker. Phoenix transforms from a troubled, lonely clown into a murderer. There are times where I really fell for him, and there were times where I was disappointed and repulsed by his behavior, right? Um, and I, I, I like that. Phoenix spent months talking through the script with his director, Todd Phillips. But the one thing he's loath to do is rehearse with other actors. It just it feels impossible to me. What do you mean impossible? I don't know. It's, um, it just feels so fake. Mm. I mean, the great thing about shooting a movie is shooting multiple takes and you use editing. And so you grab those best moments. So I'd rather discover those moments while we're working um, then in the rehearsal process and then feel like, oh, that was really good what we did. How do we recreate that? Those moments he discovers while filming are often unscripted and unexpected. 
like this pivotal scene in Joker just after he commits his first murder. The script simply called for Phoenix to hide his gun in a bathroom. It felt like the character had moved way past that and that there, there was the, the opportunity to express something else. But I didn't know precisely what that, what that was. Director Todd Phillips played him some cello music that had been composed for the film, and that sparked an idea. And I thought there was some kind of some kind of movement that it was like some some physical transformation, right? Metamorphosis. As the cameras rolled, he found himself marking that metamorphosis into a killer with this haunting and macabre ballet. to all the characters you're yeah, playing. Yeah, which I love. I think oftentimes people feel like I identify and I'm expressing something of my own experience through the character. Um, I think it's the opposite. I think it's because oftentimes the characters um, have these lives and experiences that are so foreign to me um, that it, it breaks my heart. That may be one of the most surprising things about Joaquin Phoenix. He is not his characters. He's incredibly close to his family and seems most relaxed when he's with them. What was Joaquin like as a, as a child? <laughs> be very, be very careful. Be very careful with this mom. We all should answer this one at a time. Yeah. From my perspective, I was a terror. <laughs> you were a terror. Yeah, but I was hoping you guys were going to go like, that's not true. That is oh, not true. I know, thanks, guys, I know. He has three sisters, Rain, Liberty, and Summer. That's his stepdad, Jeffrey, and his mom, Hart. If those names didn't tip you off, the Phoenixes were a band of hippies. They had little money, but deep convictions. Hart and their late father, John Lee Phoenix, homeschooled the kids, and in the 1970s, they moved around constantly. For two years, they lived in Venezuela with a cult called the Children of God. Yeah, they obviously don't uh, advertise themselves as a cult, or else no, nobody would join. Right, right. Right? So it seemed like it was this uh, a community. You really did not have much of anything. Is that fair to say? We were ministers. We were just living on the road, and we shared our truth, and we would get donations. But by 1977, they say they'd grown disillusioned with the cult, and move back to the U.S., eventually settling in Los Angeles with no money and no real plan. The Phoenix kids started performing on the streets. That seven-year-old Joaquin on the right. Next to him, his older brother, River Phoenix. Gonna make it, gonna make it, gonna make it. River was the first to get into acting and became a star in the hit film, Stand By Me. Joaquin was 10 when he landed his big break on an episode of Hill Street Blues. What do you remember about it? I remember that, um, are you guys gonna play the scene on this thing and then I'm gonna answer it? You know, be... television is a visual <laughs> medium, so, I mean. My memory is that I felt like my entire body was buzzing. There was a certain kind of power that, right? I was in a room full of adults and I felt that um, I had like um, affected them. Like, I, I, had, I had changed how they were feeling. Well, you punched one of them. Well, 
<laughs> she it wasn't, how she was it wasn't real. It wasn't real, Anderson. Your daddy's very sick right now. My daddy's not sick. Don't say that about him. Don't say that about him. As a teenager, Joaquin became surprisingly picky about the roles he took and didn't act much. His brother, River Phoenix, had become a household name and at 18 was nominated for an Oscar. But in 1993, it all ended. River Phoenix died of a drug overdose outside this Hollywood club. Joaquin and Rain Phoenix were with him. He was just 23. The family has rarely spoken about his death publicly. We were so removed from kind of the entertainment world. We didn't watch entertainment shows. We didn't have the entertainment magazines in our house. Uh, you know, I mean, River was a really substantial actor and movie star, and we didn't really know it. And so during that time in which you're most vulnerable, there are helicopters flying over, there are people that are trying to sneak onto your land. Certainly, for me, it felt like it impeded on the mourning process, right? The grieving process happens out of nowhere. You know, I'll be driving, and all of a sudden, I will feel it, and I'll just Even welcome it. Oh, yeah. I mean, There's no timeline for grief. There right? is <laughs> no timeline or no place where, you know... It just happens, and I, and I welcome it. The family has found creative ways to honor River's life. His sister, Rain, a musician, just released an album dedicated to River. And the family runs a nonprofit organization named after him that works on social justice issues and conflict resolution. Joaquin says he's felt his brother's presence throughout his career, which has been wildly successful and often unconventional. A decade ago, Joaquin made a fake documentary about his own life called I'm Still Here. It was meant as a critique of fame. And as part of the film, he announced he was quitting acting to become a rapper. I never betrayed you. I never did what you thought I did. Till you came out this swinging kid. It was all an act, but hardly anyone knew. Phoenix kept up the facade in public for more than a year. You may remember this disastrous appearance with David Letterman. Uh, you're not going to act anymore? No. Why is that? Mm, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, so you, you have given it some thought. There were rumors he was on drugs or having a breakdown. The film was a flop, but Phoenix says it made him a better actor, but less it, afraid but... to make mistakes. I think what I didn't know is how much it would impact and influence my career as an actor. What, what is the impact? There's something liberating about public humiliation. So to go through that sort of crucible is freeing in a way? Yeah, I mean, look, can't get much worse, right? <laughs> far from it. Joker has brought in more than a billion dollars so far and is the highest grossing R-rated movie of all time. Success fueled in part by controversy. Some people thought the film glorified a killer. Others saw it as a case study of mental illness and society's failures to address it. I've described it as like a Rorschach test. It says something about the person viewing it and what they think that it's about. That's really rare for a film to kind of have that effect on people. Um, so in some ways, I welcomed it. Phoenix is already working on another film. When we last saw him, it was one of his few moments of downtime. And he was more than ready to see us leave. Yeah, so when you're not working, what do you, what do you do? 
I mean, do you like having time off? I do. Uh -uh. Yeah, I love it. I feel very comfortable um, with time off. What do I do? I, um, I think I do normal things. I like to cook. I, well, I really don't want to talk okay, about fine, what I do. Fine. I mean, it's just, you know what I mean? Because I just feel like, uh, yes, I go I like, I like to cook. And I like to go see movies and linger over and I just go like, but I mean, I, I, you know, I think I have very, um, basic, like, yeah, needs. Never mind. And I don't care. <laughs> Even better. <laughs> Remember when tennis was considered a precious game played by the cardigan set at country clubs and on barbered lawns? Rafael Nadal broke that mold when he cracked the sport's top ten as a teenager, all muscle tanks and long hair. Next week, at the improbable age of 33, he enters the Australian Open as the world's number one ranked player, adding to his case as the greatest player of all time. But Nadal doesn't play tennis so much as he works it, blistering the ball with annihilating force, lacing it with somersaulting topspin, and imposing his will on the opponent. His relentless approach is strikingly effective, and strikingly at odds with the vibe on the Spanish island where he was born, lives now, and vows never to leave. Nadal invited us to his hometown last month, during what passes for an off-season in tennis, five weeks most players use to rest up before the start of a new season. Most players, but not Rafa Nadal. We found him blasting away at practice every morning, deploying his lefty forehand and double-fisted backhand, every bit as dialed in as he is during his matches. Such is his intensity, Nadal requires two sparring partners. His main coach, Carlos Moya, was once the world's number one ranked player himself. And even he struggled. That was easy, Nadal joked. Hola. How are you doing? Good to see you. Full disclosure, I've covered Nadal for 15 years on the pro tennis tour, but this was our first extended on-camera interview. He's fluent in English, but expresses himself more freely in Spanish. You're not laid back when you play tennis. No. No. I think I'm a very intense person with a lot of energy. I live life and sports at maximum intensity. This is how I feel it. In 2019, the world felt it perhaps the best six-month stretch of Nadal's career, even by his dizzyingly high standards. In June, he won the French Open. Of course he did. It was his 12th title on the red clay of Paris. More than any player in history has won any major. In September in New York, he reeled off the shot of the year. Watch this. Not over the net, but around it. And yes, this is legal. On his way to winning the U.S. Open for a fourth time. By the time he carried Spain to a Davis Cup title, he was already number one in the world, his fifth turn closing out the season on top. As one observer put it, even at this stage of his career, Nadal plays like he's broke. So what hard-charging corner of Spain, what hive of cutthroat ambition would produce this kind of ruthless competitor? Actually, it's Mallorca, the largest of Spain's Balearic Islands. A patchwork of turquoise coves, mountain ranges, rolling meadows, Mallorca floats comfortably in the Mediterranean. 
Think of it as something akin to a tennis ball Spain volleyed in the direction of Italy. The usual historical suspects, Carthaginians, Romans, and Moors, all left their mark here. How many generations of Nadals have been on this island? Mm. Bastantes. Many. No pocas. Quite a few. What is it like to you coming back to Mallorca after spending time on the road? Para mí, volver a Mallorca For me, coming back to Mallorca means coming back to a normal life. And normal life makes me happy. I'm not just Rafa Nadal, the tennis player. I become Rafa Nadal, the human being again. Nadal is so attached to the place that when floods ravaged Mallorca in 2018, he put down his racket, grabbed a broom, and became just another volunteer. The island raised him. So, too, did his parents, grandparents, uncles, and aunts, three generations of Nadals living together, quite literally on top of each other, in this apartment block in the small town of Manacor. His uncle, Miguel Angel, played professional soccer and gave Rafa his first glimpse of life under stadium lights. He always managed to have a peaceful, normal life, close to his family. And for me, that was a very good example. But it was another uncle, Tony Nadal, then a local tennis instructor, who recognized Rafa's talent. Normally, when you throw the ball to most kids, they wait for the ball to come to them. But when he was three years old, he went straight for it. There were no perks to being the instructor's nephew. Quite the opposite. Tony singled him out, making him pick up balls and sweep the court after practice. How hard were you on him? It was hard. You were? I wanted to prepare my nephew for the future, and I thought the future will be very difficult. You say you were tough. Were you too tough? Sometimes. Still, it was out of the question that Rafa would leave home and his uncle's coaching to attend an academy. To this day, the Nadal family operates as a tightly knit clan. They attend Rafa's big matches together. They toast his successes together. And they had cause to celebrate right from the start. Nadal was an instant phenom. In 2005, the week he turned 19, he won his first French Open. His stubborn refusal to surrender and the spin he can generate with a flick of the wrist have always made him near unbeatable on clay courts. And yet the signature moment of Nadal's entire career came on grass. Wimbledon. In 2007, Nadal was close to dethroning the sports reigning king, Roger Federer, to win the tournament for the first time. But then, in keeping with an unfortunate theme of Nadal's career, his body betrayed him. A knee injury this time. Do you remember how low you were after that 2007 Wimbledon final? I was sad and I was angry with myself. Because I wasn't able to endure mentally the pain, the suffering, and the tension. Nadal got another shot the following year in what's been called the greatest match ever played. He pulled ahead early, but Federer stormed back. Ah, beautiful. During a rain delay, Rafa conferred with his uncle. I'm telling you, at that point, I thought Rafael was more likely to lose than to win. And then he looked up at me and said, relax, I'm not going to lose this match. Maybe Federer will win, but I'm not going to lose. There's a new man at the 
Winning Wimbledon was a dream. And beating Roger and the way I won, it's something I will never forget. Nadal didn't just overcome Federer, he confronted another persistent nemesis, the doubt in his head. You once said to me, if I don't feel doubt, I'm going to be in trouble. Doubt is very important to my success. What do you mean by that? If you don't have doubt, it probably means that you're being arrogant. Most athletes might think the exact opposite, that, that doubts are bad. You're, you're saying doubts are almost a, a power, a strength. I think so, yes. I think it's good for me because then I feel alert. Because tennis is a sport where things can change very quickly. That's the great beauty of our sport. A great beauty of Nadal, for all his focus and aggression, he's also unfailingly sporting, which sometimes distinguishes him from colleagues. You haven't broken too many rackets in competition, have you? How many? Do you know the total? Yes, see. What is it? Zero. Zero. <laughs> Never broken a racket. Uh-uh. What, what is that about? My family, they wouldn't have allowed me to break a racket. For me, breaking a racket means I'm not in control of my emotions. In full control of his emotions, at least until the last point, he's amassed 19 majors, only one behind Roger Federer's record of 20. But in this unrivaled sports rivalry, Nadal leads the head-to-head -head matchups 24 to 16. Ever done a long interview and not been asked about Roger Federer? <laughs> Does that bother you? No. Encantado. I'd be delighted. A, a rival, a colleague, a friend. What, what is your relationship? Creo que un poco de todo. I think it's a little bit of everything. Creo que hemos tenido una... We've had a very intense rivalry throughout our careers, but it's been a very healthy rivalry. Sana, una rival. An elegant, respectful rivalry. We've also reached a stage in our lives where we are able to appreciate that it's not just about winning. Nadal did admit to being jealous of Federer in one respect. Do you ever envy the, the health of your rivals? Yes, uh, sometimes I do. It's true that my rivals have faced fewer injuries than I've had to face. One of the theories with your injuries is that you practice and play with so much intensity that it, it takes a physical price. Is, is that something you agree with? No, or I don't know. I was told that for many years. I was told that because of the way I play, I would never have a very long career. But hey, I'm still here. For this, the final set of Nadal's career, Uncle Tony has stepped aside, and Rafa has a new voice in his ear. Carlos Moya is, naturally, a fellow Mallorcan. What percent of his intensity did you have when you were a player? Ten percent. Ten percent as intense as Rafa Nadal. And yet you come from the same place. Yeah, he's a different one, not me. Uh, here in Mallorca, we are he, like he's this. He's the exception. Yeah, he's the exception, yeah. Nadal turned his sleepy hometown of Monocor into a worldwide tennis destination. The Rafa Nadal Academy is a sprawling complex for enthusiasts and aspiring pros. When we asked Nadal if he ever considered moving his operation, as if to emphasize the point, he switched to no. English to answer. Honestly not. A lot of people does uh, because of taxes. Not or, for you. For me, it was difficult to take that decision because I have all the people that I love here, and I will win much more money if I move to another place, but moving to another place, if I'm not happy, should could be very, very expensive. 
Last October, Nadal married his longtime girlfriend, Maria Francisca Perello. Yep, she's my orkin too. She helps run Nadal's charitable foundation and tends to avoid the public eye. Though we found them together one night, hosting a group of donors. How did you ask her to marry you? <laughs> After 15 years, we don't need to talk problem. much. <laughs> Just what we have to do, fine. <laughs> yes or no? <laughs> Well, here we are. <laughs> Nadal took us to a plot of land he bought recently where he and his wife will eventually break ground on a new family home. He told us he'd planned to have kids by now. Then again, he also thought he'd be off the tour by now. This is the port of Manacor. My parents living there. Oh, your, pa your parents live across the bank? Yeah, other side. And yeah, it's good because I, I have the boat too, very close. So that helps because... Oh, you, you keep a boat here? Yeah. Yeah, so in 30 minutes, I'm in the boat. <laughs> Three minutes, you're in the boat, and you're out, out in the Mediterranean exactly. fishing. <laughs> Only one problem with this spot. The problem here is the, the kids during the summer, right. they go there, they jump. Oh, <laughs> and because, the, because there is nobody in the house, they come up and they come back. You know, they, they come from inside oh, the property. So this is a hangout for Mallorca, because <laughs> yeah. Rafa's away playing tennis, so why don't we... Go out to his property and jump off his cliff. Yeah, that's, that's, that's true. Have you, have you jumped off that? Yeah. A yeah. couple of times, yes. This is where you... Maybe it yeah. was the effects of being back home. Maybe it's because he is back on top. But we found Rafael Nadal ready to take the measure of his entire surpassing career. You've had some incredible victories and you've had some gutting losses. What is more intense, the joy of winning or the pain of losing? Depends on the moment. Unfortunately, in life, more often, we remember the negative things because they have a greater impact on us. In tennis, it's a little different, no? I think over my career that I have been happier with my victories than I have been upset with my defeats. I think. I'm Scott Pelley. We'll be back next week with another edition of 60 Minutes.